This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. I just want to thank you for downloading the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This is Series 2, Episode 20, Jay Zimmerman Top 10 Guide to Fly Fishing. Didn't really know about Jay until my wife picked up a book at the local library here in Fairfax County, Virginia, and I found this a thoroughly interesting and entertaining book, and I reached out to Jay to do the podcast. I've been fly fishing for mm, 26 years now, so it's been a long time, and think maybe I've come across everything, but I still learned a lot from Jay's book. I laughed a lot. I thought it was very entertaining. It was straight to the point. He did not sugarcoat a lot of items. Definitely look for his book on Amazon.com or stop into the fly shop where he works, Charlie's Fly Box in Old Town, Arvada, Colorado. Please also uh, either follow Jay on Facebook or subscribe to him. He's got some great information. This is his first Skype interview, so it was all novel to him. We both had some adult beverages, so please excuse any pauses or long pauses, if you will. And um, yeah, I just thought this would be a great story for Jay to tell. Like the last two interviews, and I really appreciate you guys downloading this. And I look forward to doing a follow up with Jay in the future. Hint, hint in Colorado. Um, you may pick up on some subtleties in the following podcast. So without ado, Jay Zimmerman and the top 10 guide to fly fishing. Um, so let's get this started. We have Jay Zimmerman with us. He wrote recently wrote a book, the top 10. Guide to Fly Fishing. So, Jay, where are you currently based? I live in Cold Creek Canyon. It's 10 miles up up into the mountains from uh, like west of Golden, Colorado. 
Okay, so we know Golden is the Coors capital. Did you get affected by those floods a couple months ago? Oh, we did, uh, quite severely, actually. Yeah, uh, although the road coming up to our place is rumored to open up here in the next week. So my uh, trip down into the flatland is going to get a lot easier here in about a week. So the roads have been closed for how long? Mm, over a month. Wow. I mean, there's back roads and dirt roads. That, you know, I head up, head west of here and kind of go up near the divide and come down through a state park and I can get down, but, you know, but it just takes a while. Yeah. All right. So the main reason I have you on here is sort of the reason I think why you wrote the book is the same reason I did the podcast. You know, I, I've been doing this podcast for four years now and basically I keep saying the same thing to my clients every trip and it gets repetitive. So I wanted it sort of to be out there for people to access at any time. Was that sort of the methodology of your book is just to put all sorts of information for beginners and people that have been doing this for a long time, such as myself, just to have just a good background of how to get into fly fishing? It, it was. And, I mean, there's been a thousand one intermediate and beginner fly fishing books out there that have been published. I mean, a lot of them really good. But, you know, day in and day out, and as you have probably seen as a guide, uh, and, and I worked as a guide on guide services and and, and worked in a fly shop for, for a long time. And inevitably, most of my time is spent answering the some very basic questions uh, in the shop that obviously have not been answered well enough or, or concisely enough in, in some of these books or just in not sort of a manner that's accessible enough or doesn't seem intimidating to, to a lot of beginners. So I, I feel that there's a, a lot of things online and in books and that, that sort of get a little bit too convoluted uh, and, and just confuse somebody that, that is just trying to get into it. So, yeah, that was the reason I, I wrote the book, yeah. Okay. And before you sat down with the computer typewriter, what's your background in fly fishing? Where did, when did you start? Where did you start? I, I grew up in northern Ohio, uh, right along Lake Erie. And so, I mean, I was, I was fishing there in, the, in Lake Erie in the tributaries. And I think I was 12, 10, 12, something like that. When uh, picked up an old fiberglass rod of my dad's and and started hitting you know some of the local bass and bluegill ponds and that's so I mean fishing has been there uh, from day one but uh, fly fishing kind of came a little little bit later you know how long have you been a professional fly fisherman uh ten years plus I'd say I've been here I came out to Colorado about ten years ago and and have been doing that you know either working in shops guiding for shops. Uh, for the last 10 years. Yeah. And what was that aha moment when you're like, all right, I'm going to just sit down and type this all out into a book. Was it one like straw that broke the camel's back or was it something you sort of planned out for a long time and then finally just decided, all right, I'm going to actually put this in writing. Well, Lions press contacted me and said I had four months to do it. So that was, I would say that was the aha moment. Uh, but I had I'd kind of been kind of sitting on an idea but it just sort of had no no direction or scope uh, for for quite a long for for years. But then the publisher contacted me, and they had a kind of a a general outline of, of or a concept that they wanted, and I kind of bulked at first because it was another introductory fly fishing book, and I, I felt like there was already a thousand and one of them. It wasn't until I kind of sat down and thought about it, and I thought that well, I, I can put a different spin on this. I can make it a little more entertaining, more interesting. Uh, and not do something that's already been done. So it, right. I think I think Ben was when I when I when I got excited about doing it and kind of got into the idea. And so my wife brought the book home. I'm like, all right, another random fly fishing book. 
from the library and I sat down with it and I was the hockey game was on, go Capitals. And <laughs> I ended up pressing mute and sat there and read like the entire thing at once. So I was quite pleased you brought it home for me. Um and I've been fishing my entire life and I still got some some great information from it. Um awesome. see, that, that's that's who, that's the best and biggest praise that I could ever get, man. And Let's let's give it a, a for people that are not driving right now. Where can they find it online to purchase it? Uh, you, I mean, you can go directly to Lions Press uh, online and order one. Or, but I mean, most most people are ordering stuff off of uh, uh, Amazon. That's probably the best and quickest way to get it. And who would your target audience be? Is it the novice, the person that has just stepped into a fly shop, a person that saw the movie, or I, someone that's been doing it for a couple of years? I I think I, I started it with. The target audience being the person who was thinking about getting into fly fishing and wanting to learn something about it. But then once I got further along in the project, I realized that it, it really wasn't for, I mean, a, a brand brand new beginner is going to get a lot from it and it's going to work for them. But it really wound up being more for the guy or gal that's kind of in that second, third year and really getting excited about it maybe they, they've already got kind of a cheapo rod and reel and they've kind of maybe gone out with a guide a couple of times and or maybe their dad or or a family member uh but they're really starting to, to get wrapped around the axles about this this fly fishing thing and it's to kind of help accelerate that learning curve and kind of help them muddle through all the sort of jargon and hype and, and confusion that, that a person runs into when they are trying to get really deeply submerged in fly fishing and, and, and so much of it doesn't make any sense. But I mean, it's certainly, certainly good for a, a complete novice as well. But I think it's that, that kind of second, third year person that it uh, is probably going to, who's probably going to enjoy it the most and get the most out of it. Right. And there's definitely a, a lingo and jargon that fly anglers have. And I think that after a couple of years, at least reading blogs, websites, other books, you'll finally pick up on the terms in your book. There's certain bugs you mentioned and casts and gear you need that might not necessarily be familiar words to a complete novice. So the book will definitely explain those and people can read like the word midge or hexagenia and be like, okay, I know what that is. I know what a large arbor reel is or, you know, breathable waders, double haul, etc. Um, so also, you know, from your experience in shops, what are uh, some of the common mistakes that or misconceptions that novice anglers have about fly fishing? For me, my clients think it's all about the wrist, muscles, and false casting like they saw, quote-unquote, Brad Pitt casting river runs through it. <laughs> Do you have a lot of misconceptions that people come in? Like I hate watching commercials on TV and see people fly fishing and they just, for somebody that's experienced, sees everything wrong in it. Any misconceptions that you see with people that come into shops or, or have when they pick up a book? I, I, I see a lot, and, and I kind of I pick up on a lot of misconceptions when somebody, I mean, it's a lot easier when you're on a river with somebody to, to see what they think fly fishing is or, or casting a fly rod is. So it's a lot easier when you're on the water and you're fishing with them as, as, as a guide or a, or a friend, and then to correct that and kind of show them what it really is. It's a little bit more difficult when you're, when you're in an actual shop, you're indoors and it's all just hypothetical. You're trying to explain something. Maybe you're you know, drawing, drawing little pictures on, a, on, on the back of a piece of paper. That is a challenge. And, but you do get to influence more and help more people that way by being in a shop uh, instead of maybe one or two people per day as, as a guide. 
Uh, but but it's it's challenging. There's only so much you can do and so much you can help them. But I think I think it is. I mean, casting has a lot to do with it. And I guess I'm lucky where I am on, on the front range of Colorado, where there's a plethora, just an absolute ton of of very small streams with a lot of wild small wild fish that are great educators for for anybody just getting into it. And they can. I mean, these are small creeks that. And, and it's pocket water, and they can, in their first day of fly fishing, without really even knowing how to cast, only just how to control their maybe 10 foot of line and, and the tip of their rod, they can catch fish. So it's a lot easier, uh, I'd say, in this part of the country to get somebody really hooked on fly fishing because the close proximity to good fishing and the ease of it, too. And, and that, that's all it takes, and, and you've seen it. It takes one, one fish or one moment where everything goes right and and a client or, or, or a friend or a student sees that, and they're hooked I mean, for life. Now, I'm quite jealous that you get the glamorous wild trout where you live for the beginners, where we have the urban waters and the bluegill. If only bluegill were esteemed as you know a nice rainbow trout, yeah, be a little nicer. Yeah. Well, um, I, and, and the irony there is that uh, that I came out here to, to Colorado in, in trout country to. To, to make to make a go at it in this industry, and I wound up spending most of my time uh, fishing for warm water species like bluegill and bass and carp. Yeah, I love fishing for carp on the South Platte around the stadium and the old bovine. Uh, yeah, the, what is it, the the cow? Uh, you know, I, what most is, of most of the time that I spend chasing carp are actually from uh, from about Boulder up north to Fort Collins, kind of Loveland area. But yeah. Longmont is where I spend most of my time. And I, I rarely actually even fish the South Platte for, for carp or, or trout up in the mountains. And I don't want to give too much away in the book, so I'm going to sort of hint at some of the, the bullet points and uh, yeah. talking points, but I don't want to give them away. But um, there are definitely some things you see when you write about that clients, uh, customers, people that walk into a fly shop don't need. Um, what is one thing that a lot of anglers end up purchasing? I know fly fishing is so driven by gadgets and toys. Is there one thing that a lot of people buy that they just absolutely do not need? Uh, nets. <laughs> and, and obviously there are there is a time and a place for them out here. But uh, I see a, a lot of guys spend a lot of money and, and, and time trying to decide what kind of net to carry when they're, when they're, they're fishing nothing but small creeks. And, and high lakes where, where, where it's more cumbersome in the way than anything. That, that's what the first thing that comes to mind. I'm lucky that I, my buddy who lives in uh, Littleton actually makes nets for me. Nice. He somehow warps the wood and puts ghost bags in them. I can't figure it out, but he's What's a uh, company. Or no, it's just him. Make? He doesn't have a company. Yeah, he's uh, he's an EMT near um, is it Black Rock? Blackhawk. Blackhawk. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like the smallest county in Colorado, and he has, you know, like 23 free hours a day because the only thing he does is fender benders. <laughs> yeah. So he, he taught himself how to make nets, how to make turkey calls, how to do taxidermy, and he just sits there and either ties flies or learns this stuff. So, yeah, he makes me these absolutely beautiful hand nets. Nice. Um, everything that you could, like, land a steelhead in to little brook trout. and. Yeah. They're, they're fantastic. Yeah, I don't know where he yeah, gets them. Like, he, he's just a little bit what southwest of us here, kind of up okay. the mountains. Yeah, Blackhawk's really close to here. here yeah, we've taken. Uh, is it Oh My God Road? Oh, there's a few of there. those. <laughs> yeah, there's one. We've got pictures by a sign that says Oh My God Road back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my route so, at work now. Yeah. Um, so there's things that people don't need. What should people absolutely splurge for 
Is there one item you should definitely spend more money on than something else? Yeah, I mean, you, you come into the shop, I'm going to convince you to buy all kinds of things, but uh, but I mean, honestly, it, it it's time on the water that is the most valuable thing, and I mean, if that is bribing your boss to let you off, then I guess I guess there it is. Yeah. But, uh, I miss time on the water. That's what this next week is about. My wife actually just told me while I was trying to connect with you. She's like, why don't you drive up tomorrow night? That way you have all day Saturday to fish <laughs> instead of leaving Saturday. I'm like, cha-ching. Yeah. All right, well, what should people penny pinch on? Is there one thing that you think they should send, spend money on? I guess nets would be one. Like my last podcast was about you know, saving money and fly fishing, needs versus wants. Like I want a hatch reel. I want uh, a butter stick i want a vape and i want i oh, was the new red-handed rod from reddington was, like i want these things it's a vaping, yeah. the vape yeah the vaping i'm oh, sorry so the vaping and then there's the scott rod the radiant like i want these things but you know i've got rods that are 15 years old that still catch fish yeah. no and i think somebody just starting out has to it kind of gets gets confused when they when they hear a couple of guys talking about you know the the kind of new equipment, new rod or reel that they're coveting, uh, and 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 yes, it's it's true that 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 we don't need the new radiant. Although that's probably one of the sweetest rods I've cast in a long time. Uh, but but there is a big difference between just kind of what a lot of people wind up getting either either for themselves or as a gift as as a first rod, and it's really cheap, it's really clunky, and it doesn't doesn't make their learning to cast very easy. But, there, but there's a big difference between kind of a junker rod and a really nice rod. And a really nice rod doesn't have to be very expensive. So, yeah, when I, when I tell people that they probably should spend the money on a good rod, I, I don't mean spend $800, but spend more than $80. Yeah, you don't want that Sports Authority or, or Dick starter rod in the box. No. That, like, no that, and, and that, he's a junk that, line. Yeah, that, that so many people, I think, are, are tentative because they don't know if they're going to enjoy the sport or not. And so try to spend as little money as possible on, on the rod. But, you know, they'll spend 10 times as much on a ski pass or, or gas or, or, or going out for dinner. But uh, yeah, so spend, I, spend a little bit of money so you give yourself a chance to see whether or not you can learn to cast. And you can enjoy, enjoy it. But you, you don't have to spend 800 but just spend a little more than what you'd spend at Walmart. Ski pass is a definite argument I have with my wife because I just dropped a lot of money <laughs> to get into in- intruder flies. And she's like, you paid how much for that? I'm like, what did you pay for Summit County to ski for the year? I'm like, not even negligible. Don't even start this. <laughs> yeah. And in Summit County, well, Keystone's already open, but Breck opens tomorrow. So yeah. I don't ski. So we, we both leave at like 7 a.m. She gets first lift and I'm first in the parking lot on the tailwaters. And then we meet up for operate ski nice. usually when we're out there. Yeah, I'm too clumsy to uh, to ski. Yeah, my knee. I I I don't have the knees to ski. No way, can't do it. Um, okay, so another beginner question. I, I hear this a lot. I'm not sure if you really touched on it in the the book. How often should somebody replace their tippet? I check tippet after every couple of casts, or if I if I hang it up in a tree, or if I hang it up on the bottom, or after I've landed a fish, I check it. And, and I think this it's become sort of a nervous tick of sorts where you kind of run, run your fingers up and down the, the terminal part of the leader. I'm feeling for, for knots or nicks or abrasions of any sort. And, and I think I started, I kind of got in the habit of doing this when I really got into 
serious carp fishing. You're using maybe a nine foot three X leader, uh, but you're you're casting in a lot of gravel and and, and debris and rocks. So so the the tippet winds up getting abraded quickly sometimes. And if there's one little knot or one little little nick or abrasion, and you you do after two hours of stalking fish, you hook that ten or twelve pound carp and he blows up and takes off for deeper water. You're going to lose him immediately if if there's something wrong with, with the tip material or, or terminal end of the leader. So it's kind of become a habit that uh, I will re-rig ten times more often than I'll change flies. Just clipping off my fly, putting new tippet material on, putting the same fly that I had on back on. I do okay. it often, very often. What knot do you use, and what's your preferred tippet brand? I, I used it. To tie the fly on, I used an improved clinch, and it's because it's the knot my father taught me when I was a kid, and I, I'm quick at it, and I think that should be kind of the determining factor, a, a knot that's strong and that you have confidence in and that you can do quickly. If you can tie the knots quickly, you can re-rig quickly and get back to fishing quicker. The quicker it takes you to re-rig, the, the more apt you are to stop and, and, and re-rig. And we all want to be fishing and getting as many casts in as we can and spend as, as much time as we as we possibly can with with the fly in the water. If tying the knots and re-rigging takes us too long, we're always kind of weighing that time away from fishing against our better judgment of knowing that we really need to re-rig. And that's where you, you lose big fish. Do you think, this is another random one on my end I just totally thought of, for novices that read about knots and not tying, do you really think that spitting on or wetting a knot actually makes it stronger? I mean, saliva, 98.6 degrees. I do think that it helps. I think that, I mean, there's a lot of things that we do, idiosyncrasies that all fishermen have in their in their rigging and preparation that are sort of more superstitious than anything. And I'm okay with that. Whatever it is, it kind of gives you confidence in in what you're doing, uh, whether it be confidence in, in a certain certain fly or a particular rod or a particular area, but but I do think that that wetting your your leader material just before you're cinching that knot down does eliminate some of the heat that is is caused by the abrasion of that knot. Now it may just be in a very small area and for a split second, but I do think that it does help. Okay, that makes me want to kind of spit on all my knots this weekend for steelies. However, if you chew tobacco or smoke cigarettes, uh, you probably should be careful not to get it on the fly. And it's uh, one one thing that all fish, from carp to bass to trout, uh, are are repelled by. And they're tobacco products and, uh, and and soap. I think I read this in a Berkeley did uh, studies with, with fish way back in the day, and uh, found that motor oil and WD forty and all that kind of stuff that had no effect on them whatsoever. But soap and tobacco were the two things that did did repel them. I never thought about the tobacco bit because my uh, my boss when I worked in the Keys would smoke like three Cubans in the morning with his coffee and tie knots and the, I mean the guy was disgusting. He would urinate off the flats boat. He would spit. He would. We never caught any bonefish. Every morning we went out, and I attributed to him being a total idiot, but maybe <laughs> the tobacco. I smoked for years and caught plenty of fish when I did. I, I don't anymore and still catch fish. So I, I, I can't say that I know for sure that, that that's a factor. But, uh, but yeah, absolutely, that's, yeah. that's an interesting theory. Okay, uh, so let's back into the book. How much of the book is from your guide life of being on the water with 
either novice or experienced anglers that have been out in the water before versus just the total noob that walks into the store? It It is a combination of my the, the, the guiding that I've done and the work in shops, and it's been uh, multiple different shops in Colorado. The learning experience for me all, all kind of blends into one big thing, especially in this kind of part of Colorado. There, there's a lot of, there's a transient population, and I don't mean homeless transient, but well, there's that too, but uh, there's a lot of people that come here for school, for college. There's a lot of people who come here to, to start a new career, and they're, they're not native. They're not from Colorado. I mean, neither was I. Working in a shop or, or, or guiding out of a shop here, you, you get to meet a lot of people, and it's usually within their first couple of years of, of living in the state. There's obviously people who, who are coming out as, as tourists to, to fish, but it's not this part of Colorado is not a, a real mecca tourist destination. Like, like in it's Brett. no Aspen and Eagle County. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, it, you know, if, you're, if you're working as a guide out of a shop in, in Basalt, uh, you're going to see a lot of people who just come once a year for their their annual fishing trip. Here in the kind of the Arvada, Boulder, Longmont area, you see a lot of people who who have just moved here and they're hiring you as a guide or coming into your shop uh, to kind of learn their new home waters. And that's really rewarding because you really have their attention. They're not on their cell phone, you know, wrapping up some business deal, you know, back in New York, and you have their complete attention and and they really want to learn the areas and the rivers and, and those fish as much to have a good day that day, but also to be able to come back next weekend and kind of try out what, what you've taught them. Uh, so it's, it's very re- rewarding in that aspect too. So what, what I've drawn from to, to put it into this book is, is definitely a, a combination of both of people that I've got to know on the water and just in the shop and who have, I've never fished with. Yeah. And so how do you break that book into the chapters, so you got like casting gear you need, flies from fresh to streamer dried salt water. What made you sort of? I mean, if you could gut the book and break it into sections, was it just like um, like a storyboard, and you just made bullet points here and made a subdirectory there? Well, I, I went through it and I thought of of a handful of different people that that I really had a lot of conversations with from the moment that I met them when they walked in as a complete beginner, and some of the very initial questions that they had. And it was usually about gear. I mean, just getting outfitted, just getting, making sure that you have the right stuff, and kind of wading through all the the copyright options of different pieces of gear and why you sh- why you should have it, and why you need it. And there's a lot of information out there. I mean, way more than there used to be because of the Internet. It's a good thing, but it's also a lot of beginners have this sort of option paralysis happen where they're just inundated with so much information. And and most of it's good information, but but it's varying information, and, and that's confusing. And no, I, I, I didn't try to, to write uh, kind of a, a beginner's guide to dummies. It just... I know that there was a lot of confusing information out there, and I wanted to simplify it and, and address all the little bits and pieces about gear that a copywriter is going to describe in, in the text about a reel or a rod or fly line and, and kind of explain that and, and not talk down to somebody because they don't understand what weight forward line is, but, but to explain what it is and explain right. all these different, different things that they're, that they're hearing, whether, they, whether it's in a magazine or an ad, or, or on YouTube, or somewhere online, just makes sense of it all. 
so the first part of it of uh, the book is about gear, about things that you want to look look at or consider when you're when you're choosing a new fly rod, whether it be your first fly rod or or your tenth fly rod, and then can go moving on to your reel and then line and leader and, and boots and waders and all that. So first, the first I'd say quarter of the book is is about gear and about equipment. But then you know the next part is about kind of tricks of the trade, uh, how to get better and how to improve and 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 what you should be doing and the kind of mindset you should have. And, uh, and, and I stress a lot, especially to beginners, but to, to fish local, to, to fish as often as you can. And that's what I really liked about, uh, about your website. You know, you're there based in Virginia currently and, and in DC and kind of fish where you are sort of philosophy. That's difficult out here because there's a lot of, a lot of rivers that are, that are legendary and, and famous and people from all over the lower 48 have heard of. And beginners hear about these and they want to go fish them. They may be two hours away and it's a tailwater that's very technical and there's a lot of fishermen. And so their first three or four kind of forays into the sport are nothing but maddening, frustrating and unsuccessful when they're actually living on a creek that has tons of wild fish in it. And they're fairly naive wild fish. And you can you can learn how to how to cast. You can learn how to wade develop confidence in certain fly patterns and all this. I mean, a, a little creek like, like Boulder Creek or South Boulder Creek here that that are kind of our home waters can, can teach somebody so much. I mean, like almost everything they need to know about fly fishing. Not everything, but almost. And yet they, they live on this and they drive over these, these creeks in, in the first 10 minutes of their uh, of their trip on, on a Saturday morning to, to the Blue or the South Platte or or the Taylor River, because that's what they've heard about. They've seen big fish being posted on Facebook from these rivers, and, and that's where they want to go and what they want to do, and, and they're going to fail and, until they kind of gain confidence in, in their and familiarity with their equipment. That, that sums up everything I do for a living. I love South Boulder Creek, driving by the campus and going up the narrow roads. You got the, uh, the flat irons there. I mean, that is such a beautiful stream with pocket water and boulders the size of, you know, Winnebago's. And here we've, we know we're fishing under overpasses on 495 next to homeless camps. And you're, you're like backyard creeks are what most of us vacation for. And the people there think those are not the places to go vacation for. Yeah. I wonder if yeah. somebody wants to fish under 495, Somebody in Florida was like, oh, I can't wait to vacation in D.C. and go fish under an underpass with <laughs> MS-13 gangbanger graffiti. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, but, you know, the urban the urban scene is really kind of fun here, too. It's, it's taken off. And you've got the carp tournament that goes on around the South Platte in Denver. Yep. The West Denver Trout Unlimited chapter puts that on. It's been seven years now. There's been a handful of us out here on the front range of Colorado that for, for a last 10, 15 years have really spent a lot of time and energy pushing this carp thing, fly fishing for carp. And it's, I love them. It's just finally, it's finally really starting to kind of be accepted. And, and there's some of the reservoirs that I, I fish nearby that, you know, the little old ladies, when they, they see a string up your rod, they know what you're doing. They don't ask you if there's trout in there anymore. You now they say, oh, are you, are you one of those people who fish for carp? And yeah, I, I am. That's awesome. Yeah, it's. I, it's I tell my clients, I'm like, yeah, we fish for carp. They're like, what? I'm like, dude, it's like a ham with an outboard motor on the back. <laughs> that's that's a, a <laughs> that's a good description right there. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, they're freaking huge. And what we have is the sewage outflows in D.C., so that water all winter is 62 to 74 degrees Fahrenheit. So you have these carps that are in schools of the, by the dozen. But they're, I mean, I haven't landed a carp in over two years. They're finicky, but they're there, and it's a challenge. Well, you're going to have fun when you come out to this part of the country. Oh, that's the plan. Yeah. Yeah, there's some really um, good water from North Denver up to Fort Collins, and, and you know a lot of guys are are, are fishing for them in, in rivers like the South Platte there in Denver. You know the the tournament that uh, that West Denver puts on every year raises money for cold water fisheries for the South Platte further on up, uh, and it's just really good. And, and Trout Unlimited has is very involved in a lot of these sort of carp oriented programs. Well, what is Kirk Dieter now for for Trout Unlimited? Is he like the? He's the he's. Executive editor for TU, I think, mm-hmm. magazine and he's, uh, he's a big, big angling trade. I mean, he's man, fisherman, and yeah. field and stream. Yeah, he's got his hats. That dude's busy. He's got like a, a one-year-old. I don't know how he does it. Oh, well, well, there's two of them. He's got a twin brother, uh, but nobody knows that. <laughs> oh, did I just say that out loud? Oops. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> Sorry, Kirk. Uh, so. <laughs> What one of the things like in the book? Simplicity, you know, one of them is yeah. a little dumber than the other. You just never know which one you're talking to. I don't think I've ever laughed out loud in a fly fishing book, but there's a section on birds. I don't want to give away the section. <laughs> yeah. Ducks, but <laughs> when we're fishing, we've got a lot of blue herons in this area. Ah, yeah, uh huh. And they, when you spook them, they always fly to the next spot you're gonna they'd always go like if we're fishing counterclockwise they'll go from nine to ten o'clock and then from ten to eleven and eleven to twelve they'll never go from ten to nine or ten to eight (laughs) and i don't know what the deal is they always go to the spot where you're fishing next yeah i mean it becomes strategy with like you and a partner to try to and we have mossy creek in virginia and i kid you not there are times when you sprint up or downstream to get ahead of the foul and when I read that part in your book, I mean, I was hashtag LOL or whatever you call ROFL, you know, I, yeah. that was, I've never seen that in the book. And I thought that was great that you added that section in and listeners, you have to buy the book. Don't get it from the library. You got to buy the book to find out what we're talking about. Hey, the libraries need the support too. <laughs> yeah. Well, our libraries just threw out 4,000 books in a dumpster one day and Somebody just walking by did like a Twitter picture of it, and all the Fairfax County libraries are in a lot of deep doo doo. I they literally just took trash cans of unused books. I and, think I saw a story about that. Yeah, yeah. it's atrocious. Yeah. All right. So, um, other things that novices experience. How should a person that's new to this deal with stream etiquette? So you walk in and you see a dude fishing a hole. You know, once there was we were fishing the white fly hatch on the yellow breaches. Mm-hmm. And this guy was fishing downstream, and honestly, a foot behind his, his knee pit, if that's a term. There's a rainbow trout rising for dry flies. So I start throwing a, a you know, little white uh, coffin fly behind him, and the guy starts copping an attitude. And it wasn't where he was fishing. It just happened to be where he was. And my buddy's like, dude, just leave it alone. I'm like, no, I want to throw a rock 40 yards downstream to where he's fishing and spook all his fish. And he's like, man, it's not worth it. Stream etiquette, bro. Let's move on. So, I mean, we had, you know, enough nerve to just kind of leave it alone. But, you know, in a populated area like, you know, the the front range, what do you guys do when you come across other people fishing? Well, it really varies depending on on where you are. And I think that 
I mean, there, there's some truths about stream etiquette or just dealing with other anglers, kind of giving them a, a wide berth. And all, all that, that holds true no matter where you're fishing, what part of the country, what species of fish you're after. Uh, and, and there's a lot of those, and, and they're fairly common sense. The, the, only, the ones that, that start to get a little touchy are, are, are how much space to give another angler. There, there's so many different variables, different types of, of water. What, what you'd give somebody you know, on a small stream... You know, up in any of these kind of the headwaters of any of these creeks uh, here on the front range, and, and you see another person, which rarely you do, then you try to either, you know, assess which way they're going, you know, half a mile to a mile out of their way. And so you are ensured that you're never going to see them for the rest of the day. You can't do that and go to that sort of extreme when you're on a large river, like a tailwater, especially in the winter, when when that tailwater is the only open body of water, and there may only be three quarters of a mile of it, and there's 20 people who are there rigging up and, and fishing. The, the 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 kind of the halo around you and around other anglers becomes a, a little bit different and a lot smaller, and it becomes a little bit more of a social scene, which I'm, I'm not particularly fond of. So I, I tend to avoid those types of water. I think, and I used to teach this in classes and to any clients that I had when I was in the water. You can try to make a lot of rules, like oh, you know. Now, 20 feet or two pools or 100 yards or half a mile, it, it doesn't really apply o- overall because everything's so different. Uh, so I tried to come up with something that was kind of universal and simple. And I used to say that if you were conscientious of it, if you were, if it was on your mind and you were worried about what the right thing to do was on the water, if you were thinking about it, then you probably were going to do the right thing and give somebody enough room or or, or not fish somewhere where you wanted to because somebody else might be kind of moving in on that area. If you were thinking about it, you're probably not going to offend anybody, and there's not going to be a problem on, on the river. It's, it's the anglers who, well, it's the drivers, for that matter, that are, that are the same way. That if, if you're not thinking about other, other drivers or other fishermen when you're on the river and you don't care about them, then that's, you're probably going to be the one who's the reason for an etiquette chapter in the, in the back of every book or magazine. Uh, but if you're thinking about it, you're probably going to do the right thing, whatever that is. Has any angler you ever heard of actually like gotten into fisticuffs or yeah. thrown down because of it? Yeah, I have heard a lot of stories of it. Usually it's just two different people. Either, either they, they come from two different cultures, whether, you know, one's a bait fisherman and one's a fly fisherman, or, you know, one's kind of a more of a solitary angler and the other is just a, nothing but a, a through and through tailwater fisherman. It's when two, two anglers from two different worlds wind up bumping into each other when, when right. the biggest problems sort of arise. Uh, because there are certain codes of, of conduct and, and, and ethics that are practiced and, and understood amongst a particular group. And this could be just in fly fishing. You know, the guys that say here in Colorado, every spring and fall, go fish the dream stream on the South Flat. Versus someone like myself who spends a lot of time on high lakes or high elevation streams and, and rarely sees anybody. It's when those two types of anglers run into each other and each one has their own sort of concept of, of stream etiquette. That's where the problems usually usually happen, and it's and it's not black and white. It's uh, there's a lot of lot of gray area. I mean, in, in some in some cultures and in some places and states and countries, pole hogging is is a, a really big deal. In, in others, 
if you, you see someone rusting a pool, it's their pool, and they can have it all day if they want. And, and then, then there's some where that is definitely frowned upon. There's nothing really, really clear cut. As, as sort of Indiana Jones would say, I'm making some of these questions up as I go. You know, that last topic reminded me of a recent video posted on the Internet of, of course, where I'm going now tomorrow, the Salmon River in New York. Um, and you hear horror stories up there. Just, I, I have it, been on that river, and it did look like a horror story, yeah. Yeah. Um, so recently there's Don, who owns a fly shop in town and owns I half of the river bottom. You saw it? Okay. I saw the so video. Yeah, so Dawn basically owns river property to half the river bed, but she went across the river and um, sort of verbally assaulted and then actually ass- physically assaulted somebody who had been fishing across the water onto her property. She owns the river bottom, but not the actual water where they were casting. Um, do you find that it's becoming an increasing po- problem in fly fishing that people are pi- buying up private land now? There, um, well, no, I mean, there's and charging for that. So you got Spring Ridge Club. There's, I know there's a lot of groups in Colorado that are buying private property. There, there, um, there and, are, and and that's uh, it's a, a touchy subject. There's a lot of public access here in Colorado. There's a lot of national forest and wildlife area, and there's there is. More more public area to either hunt or fish in Colorado than any state that that I can think of besides Alaska. Maybe. But there are a lot of either private landholders who have discovered that there is some money in leasing certain properties to private clubs and and all that, and, and it's certainly their right to do so. A private club has an entrepreneurial move that that can be beneficial to the fishery to anglers and a lot of a lot of things. So I'm not going to make a stand on, on one side or the other on that. There is, however, some backdoor dealing, I guess, uh, sort of shady business when it comes to some of the areas here in Colorado. You know, stream access laws are are different in every state. So there's been some private entities that have kind of pushed the boundaries of of what's legal and what's not. You know, harassed sportsmen. There's definitely a problem, and and it's it's brewing. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. Uh, and there's a particular club here very close to where I live in, in this canyon uh, that, that owns a private, a, a very small stretch of South Boulder Creek, but also has been kind of leasing other little bits and pieces of, of, of other private water upstream and down, and now has kind of started bullying fishermen out of known public areas because the last survey that was done in the area was maybe 80 to 100 years ago. And so it's kind of unclear of where boundaries are and nobody wants to get involved. So they've just kind of taken the initiative to start posting signs uh, along South Boulder Creek. These clubs have a lot of money and a lot of clout and there's really nothing and nobody that has the, the means or money to, to kind of to fight it. And, and they're sort of, you know, destroying historic buildings and stocking, you know, large, large stocker fish in, in a little river, in a little creek that has eight to ten inch fish, naturally, and they're they're stocking twenty, twenty two inch rainbows with square tails straight out of the hatchery, and 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 running running fishermen off of uh, public water. It's uh, it's unfortunate. It, it is, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's like the antithesis of fly fishing. It 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 is, and and the, the, but there there will always be a group of people that want to be considered fly anglers and that who want to go and, and have this sort of canned, when I, when I was a hunting guide, we used to call it a canned hunt. 
uh, and it's a canned fishing trip is what this is is they want yeah. to go they want to go, go to a state like Colorado they want to be in the mountains they, they want to be in a remote area they don't want to have other people around them and they want to catch a big fish and they only fish maybe four times you know four days in a row a year and they want to have a couple of trophy shots to take back and, and show their buddies at, at the office and they'll spend whatever amount of money and they will let themselves be diluted by whatever they have to be to wind up in a, in a very fake kind of orchestrated environment where they don't have to have any skill or knowledge or anything. And, and, and they get their trophy shots and then they have their kind of their token fly fishing trip every year. And there's plenty of people that uh, have plenty of money who, who want that and who don't really want to think too much about where it is they're going or whether or not that fish they just caught is is a real fish or not i mean so it's big business i mean there's, there's always going to be deep pockets who uh who want that sort of experience and yeah it does kind of go against what what we all who really love the sport and think of when we think of the sport uh, it, it goes against what, what what we've kind of imagined it to be it's a little bit something different to everybody i suppose said that perfectly 100 percent agree yeah i don't think the term canned fishing has ever been I've never come across that, but that's exactly like going to Texas and shooting like a giant kudu, an African antelope that's fenced in. Yeah. You're going and, and throwing a brown pellet fly at something that, or a San Juan so, worm at some so, giant dumb hatchery chiploid fly, uh, trout. You're, you're fishing to you, – you come to Colorado and, and you hire a guide for a day, and, and your guide will take you to some public water, fish for wild fish, fish that were – that have for generations been you know, born and lived in, in that stream, and they're beautiful, and they're 10 inches long. And you may struggle. You may work through the morning, and by the end of the day, you've caught a handful of fish, and your guide has absolutely worked his ass off, and, and you have learned something, and you've appreciated something, too. You can have that experience, or you can spend $2,000 at Lincoln Hills and catch a rainbow trout that has been eating pellets and probably arrived in Colorado after you did. <laughs> and, and it was probably put in that river that day. You can do that. Right. And there's that ex- experience waiting for you. It's like paying for a hooker or using your like machismo and skill to actually there's a quote, a John, seal the deal. A John Garrock quote in, in one of his books, a uh, great writer and, and, and a friend. It said, there's some things that, and I think he was quoting someone else, so I don't even think he coined it the phrase but there's there's some things that that a guy has to arrange for himself sex is one and fly fishing is the other <laughs> yeah i agree my other favorite quote of his is uh bagpipes they either make you want to fight or cry but that <laughs> yeah. dude, that was on that was. oh i hear a good sound there Are you pouring another tall one yeah i'm gonna go with you're drinking zinfandel tonight a nice bold california peppery red Oh, it's a cab set, actually. Ah, that's still good. What state? Oregon? Uh, Cal- California? Chilean. Chilean. All right. I got three big bottles of Bold Red because um, your Trader Joe's do not sell alcohol. you got to go down to, like, Tipsy's for some, there's, some wine. Yeah, there's a, only one of them could get a liquor license, I guess. I don't know. So we've got our Trader Joe's sells wine, and there's a, a wine called Epicuro. It's an Italian wine that I think only they sell. It's five ninety nine, and you'd think it's a twenty dollar bottle. Nice. So I got three bottles of those for tying up, and then I'm going to our Costco also sells alcohol, so I'm going to get a case of Guinness tomorrow for the steelhead trip. Nice. My as long as it is red and it has alcohol, I'm I'm good with it. 
Fant- oh, so when I come out there, I know what to buy you. <laughs> Absolutely. Better Miller highlight. Oh, the champagne. Mm. We just went through a 12. That's the hardest. So we've got a kegerator. It's behind me right now, but it's only full of, um, unfortunately, bottles of Moet, Chandon, and Espresso Stout. But the hardest tap handle to come across that I've found is the Champagne Girl, the little the oh, Miller okay. High Life Champagne Lady. I cannot, I mean, even on eBay, that's the hardest tap handle to find. Okay. I've got a nice uh, Chinook, um, what is it? It's Red Hook Copper. Uh-huh. It's a big, you just pull, it's a, it's a, 10-inch salmon, you pull that and your beer comes out, if we ever get a keg again. <laughs> yeah. Okay, man, I've been divulging into uh, tangents and whatnot. So um, another random question. What new advances in fly fishing do you think are here to stay, and what do you think are here to disappear? Now, my two things that are going to disappear, one is that reel that sits on your chest. <laughs> I- Wait, I wait. I don't even think that's actually appeared yet. I don't. No, he was he was at IFTDI cast this year in Vegas. Yeah. And uh, um, do you remember the the Moffat fly well, system? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was I was actually going to bring that up. Yeah. <laughs> you beat me to it. Yeah. Uh, there's there's two there's two that are notoriously horrible. Uh, one one is the Moffat fly system, and the other is this Gateway Hook Company. It's uh, like, yeah, look into it. It's it's the most hilarious thing you'll ever see. It's worse than this Moffat fly system. But those two might be the most two. Well, well, no, I'll have to add a third. It's that, that reel mounted on your chest. I'd say those yeah. are the three most ridiculous and hilarious pseudo innovations in fly fishing that I've ever seen. It's It's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, they're bad. All three bad. And then, yeah. And then Orvis once, I mean, because I, I used to work at, I've worked at Orvis in Key Largo, Colorado, Northern Virginia, West Virginia. The West Virginians actually burnt down the lodge where the Orvis was located. So that put me out of a job. Well, they torched it with gasoline. Yeah. Well, I guess they Locals. wanted sage in there. Right. <laughs> so um, Orvis used to sell, it was a piece of metal on a rope that you would like lasso over a tree branch to pull your tree branch down and pull your fly out, which was a very just odd, cumbersome idea, which well, was bizarre. Yeah. And, I, and I used to see these, these magnets that you could, uh, when, when I was a kid and, you know, did all the trolling for a while in Lake Erie, there's these magnets that you could slide down your line and to try to free a snag lure. There, there'll always be little inventions like that to help you get back your fly or your lure, and and I'll, I'll never knock any company or any guy that's trying to is, is trying to do that. Although it's pretty much a futile effort. Either you can get it free quickly, or you can't. I expect to lose a lot of flies this weekend, and the crew I'm taking up are not steelhead anglers and not really fly tires. Yeah. So I I bought flying them, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> I, I bought 800 hooks on Fly Shack to take up with me, yeah. and I'm just assuming I'm tying flies for everybody. Yeah, yeah. As, as long as you know that going into it, you'll be all right. Right. <laughs> and this is the second time I've ever paid for lodging on a fly fishing trip. That's because it's November, and I actually want to be able to shower for once. I don't know if I'm getting old, uh, or I just actually want to shower and... Yeah. Yeah, I don't say that. Change something. No. Goonies never say die. Yeah. All right. Um, another question I have. You're online. You're on Facebook. What is the deal with people that pose with trout with a fly rod perched on their shoulder? 
I actually had a good chuckle about that. You have it right there on your on, on your website. Uh, yes. That you're gonna that you, and uh, I will never like that picture. It's well, there's, so there's two. There's posing contrived. There, there, Put there, the rod under your arm. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I work I work in a shop in, in Arvada, and uh, it, it's a small shop, but uh, it's, it's pretty. Is it old Old Town Arvada? Old Town Arvada. It's Charlie's Flybox. Charlie's. There we go. It was closed when I went by, so I ended up actually. I'm wearing Carhartts right now that I bought from the Army Navy store. A oh, block yeah. to the right and down. Yeah, it's right. It's sometimes sometimes I'll get exasperated and just walk on down like looking yeah. for Army patches or something. I got my I, new um, fuzzy <laughs> fuzzy like Elmer Fudd hat there too. Yeah, that I'm wearing. If this you week. need a poncho liner or Woody uh, or uh, or a pair of Jungle boots or, or an old unit patch. I mean, or, or a fishing license. That's where you go in Arvada. It's a nice. It's yeah. Cool. So Charlie's was closed the day I went by. I was pretty stoked so, to go in. So it's the three of us. It's, it's Dave Cook, myself, and, and Charlie Craven, of course, uh, that that run the shop. Charlie and I just had a conversation about that pose, I, the two days ago. Uh, it's it's hilarious, but you know you see these fads kind of come and go. I'll acknowledge that fishermen are trying to do something a little bit different. But but it is kind of comical. There is sort of a little subtlety that has to happen of, you know, the difference between just a regular Griffin grin, which kind of gets trite and boring anyways. But you always want to have maybe your fly rod somewhere there, just yeah, you know, so you are, are recognized as as a as a fly fisherman. But you're not center pinning. You're yeah yeah, uh, and trying you're trying so hard and making it so obvious to. I mean, I've seen photos that go so far as. A, a guy holding a fish in one hand and his fly rod in the other and pushing them both towards the camera. Like, look, I got a fly rod in one hand and a trout in the other. I mean, I mean it's gone that far. But I think uh, there's been a couple of kind of interesting fads that in, in, in gripping grin photos. That one that you mentioned is, is one of them, and it's kind of comical. But uh, the other one that is even more comical is so the, the holding a large fish up in front of the camera that blocks your face. Have you seen this? I, I want to attribute that to the Drake because those guys always have to be incognito. I gotta swirl my face or put a slice of pizza over it. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's just different. It's it's a little it's cheesy. I'm not into it. No, neither one of them. No pun intended with the cheesy with the pizza. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's talk about so Charlie's fly boxes randomly. He's got the book. He's known for Juju, Midge. Um, he's got a bunch of his personal patterns. He's in Fly Fisherman, I guess. H. Yeah, season. He, writes, he writes for uh, Pernell and for, for for Fly Fisherman. Most issues have have something something by Charlie. Hoping that he never hears this, I'll say that I'll go so far as to say that he's probably. Or unarguably the best fly tying instructor that anybody's ever going to have have a chance to either watch tie or or be taught by. And, and it's the reason. I mean, I've I've been in this industry for for a while and tried for four years. I tried to get into his shop. It's a small shop, but it's probably one of the more profitable shops in Colorado. And you know, best selection of fly tying materials and experience as far as fly tires and fishermen in the shop. It's definitely an honor to kind of be a part of that crew. And yeah, Charlie is uh, the first book that he put out was a basic guide to fly tying, and it's the best basic fly tying book that has ever been written, and/or ever will be written. And he's working on another one at the moment. Uh, he's working on a series of fly tying books through Stackpole right now, but uh, I, I can't think of another better fly fly tire that, that I've ever known. It's, it's a privilege to work for him and kind of pick his brain and 
and to be a part of a shop and work with people alongside people that, that I can learn stuff from. It's uh, so often that I've wound up working in a fly shop where I was the person that everybody in the shop was learning stuff from or who was kind of following or, or trying to be. And it's nice to kind of be the least experienced person in the place where you're working. It's, it's kind of nice. That's a good endorsement. How did you get involved in his shop? Did you just you know, call up? I'm a fan of yours. I'm looking for employment. I want a guide. Oh, no, How no, did you I, get hooked I, up with Charlie? I mean, someone could write probably several books about interactions and, and history of, of different fly shops in Colorado. There's been a lot. They've come. They've gone. There's been drama. I liken it to that old show on TV, Dallas. Or, or what was it? What was it? An old kind of, it was like a semi-soap opera, but I, I can't remember. The I think Dallas, that was a little bit before my time. Yeah, I mean, I was... But, yeah. I mean, it's just drama and people, and it's incestuous in kind of this weird way of reps, fly fishing reps will work for different companies, switch companies, employees will jump ship. I mean, the lifers, you know, you always have, you know, some college kids kind of working in different shops and it's kind of there for a couple of summers. But then you got the lifers. Oh, I mean, there's no shortage of drama there. And Charlie started working for a shop when he was really young in Boulder. And then, you know, left to do some guiding, a lot of guiding on the South Platte and down in kind of Denver. And, and then got called up to Boulder again to open up a new shop. And so I've worked at all these shops usually about six or seven years after Charlie had left them. It's a small environment and everybody learns of everybody. And you have a, a large group of people that you're kind of looking up to and kind of trying to learn stuff from. But the further along you progress, the, the fewer people that are out there that are doing the things that you want to do and that you feel that you can learn something from and that you want to be kind of associated with. Uh, it got to the point where he was the last one in Colorado that I felt that I needed to learn something from. And so mm. I, I kind of put my sights on, on him and his shop. And of course, I mean, I, I've known him for years and, and, and was friends with him. So I knew that sooner or later that I was going to get down there and work for him. We, we joked about it for years. And finally, it happened. So it was good. It was kind of a, a multi-year sort of project for me to get down there and work for him. Yeah. And you yourself are a fly tire. We have the backstabber. Yeah, Charlie, your Charlie Craven designs flies for Uncle Feather Merchants, which who are based now in Louisville, Colorado, and, and I designed flies for the same company. So it was a, a really kind of neat and comfortable fit for him to kind of bring me into his shop. Because we're, we're, we're obviously not competition. We're, we're designing flies for, for the same company, the, the, the larger fly wholesaler out there. It's a comfortable fit. And, and Louisville is 35, 40 minutes away from, from Arvada, from the shop. And they kind of moved from out west here about maybe six, seven years ago, kind of be more in the central hub location of fly fishing. So, yeah, it's all kind of fallen into place. Pretty neat. Okay. So I want to talk about two of your flies, Backstabber and Clan Shoe Caddis. Yeah, backstabber seems to me to be a quite regional pattern. Um, I still haven't sat down well, to tie one, but I I've known about it. Well, and here's the what, thing: what took the development? It's a carp fly. It was developed here in Colorado, but then again, kind of the front range of Colorado has been the hub of of fly fishing for carp. So it just kind of started here, and then kind of bled elsewhere. Took a long time for it to kind of catch on elsewhere. Once the internet was was kind of in place and YouTube videos and, and people could kind of share ideas and share what's going on, I attribute that more than anything to the, the sort of the widespread acceptance and popularity of, of carp fishing. The, the backstabber is a carp fly that and I, I still use every year. Is the, it the a first, bait fish? What I mean? What well, is it? It's a, it's it's buggy uh, and fishy. Looking. There's a lot of different colors it comes in. It's, it's kind of small. It's uh, black or 
there's a little shad version of it. There's a little leech version of it, a little crayfish version of it. It's a very simple fly, very suggestive. There's a lot of movement. It's a fly that rides hook up, and it's got stuff just the right amount of, of weight to it to kind of flip the Right, because the, the eyes have to be, like, not right behind, but they've got to be, like... Yeah, they're kind of back into the quarter body. inch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it balances perfectly and rides hook up. And it's, uh, it was the first fly that I ever sold to Uncle. It kind of got me into the door as a signature fly designer. And I've designed bass flies, carp flies, trout flies, everything for, for Uncle over the years. But, yeah, it was definitely a regional fly, to, to, to answer your, your initial question. But it has worked everywhere, from, from Salt Lake City to, to the Great Lakes to Missouri. And i got to imagine bonefish would annihilate the thing. When I first sold the pattern to Uncle, I, I offered them one that I thought that maybe – Saltwater fishermen could use it. Never got picked up, and so it just is blasphemy. <laughs> I don't know if it would work. You know, I couldn't vouch for it as a saltwater or bonefish pattern because I've never tried it in that sort of application. But uh, but for carp, definitely. But you know what I found that since carp fishing has has blown up and become absolutely not not just regional kind of front range of Colorado, but everywhere and and every sort of zone, every every area in, in the United States has their own sort of culture. Has sprung up, you know your your Great Lakes, your Beaver Island carp fishermen, and your kind of Midwest carp fishermen, and your Western carp. I mean, I, I know some guys. Who is that? Aaron? Is that Jim up there in where is he? Seattle. I mean, there's just different areas in Oregon. Yeah, he's in Oregon. Uh, so every different area has sort of developed their own style of carp fly, and you see a lot of similarity, but you see a lot of differences too. And the environment's different. The fish are different. And it's really interesting. I mean, I, I see definite Colorado-type carp patterns. I see Western carp, you know, you know very West Coast carp patterns, Great Lakes carp, carp patterns. Uh, and that's a project that I'm working on at the moment, a fly tying book for Stackpole. And another reason why I wanted to kind of get in with Charlie Craven and kind of pick his brain and, and, and make contacts that he has with Stackpole and some of these larger book publishers. The book project I'm working on now is is nothing but carp patterns uh, and, and how to time a very step-by-step instructional uh, book through Headwaters and, and, and Jay Nichols there at, at Headwaters and Stackpole, kind of celebrating kind of early carp flies and regional carp flies from all over the country. Who developed them, when, and, and how to tie them. Uh, it's been probably the most enjoyable project I've worked on in a long time. I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to it being done, to be honest. <laughs> And let's talk about your your, your clown shoe caddis. Is it just visible and floaty, or what's the other methodology behind that, that pattern? That fly, I, I came up with that fly on Boulder Creek, and it was originally called the Boulder Creek caddis. When I sold the pattern to Umqua, they said, well, you know, Boulder Creek caddis, that, that name is, is definitely too regional, and we want to sell it all over the country and elsewhere, uh, so we have to come up with a different name for it, and, and we struggled. I mean, I, I sat there in kind of the headquarters at Umqua, and and talked to Bruce Olson and, and Brian Schmidt. We're, we're sitting around, and, and Brian was a guy my age that I actually worked in a fly shop with years past, and he now works for Umqua, and he's probably got the dream job. He's like the new fly manager, quality control. I, I can't remember what he does there, but everybody envies him, including me. We're all sitting there at the headquarters and trying to come up with an idea for a name, and he was like, man, you can call that thing like, anything you want you can call that thing a clown shoe it doesn't matter it's going to sell and we just all kind of sat around and looked at each other and like yeah actually why not <laughs> call it the clown shoe so yeah the name kind of got chosen sort of randomly 
But yeah, the idea of the fly is a caddis. It's dry fly. It's a caddis. And I've had caddis hatches out there for a reference for the ballers. It was the weekend that Kobe Bryant did something naughty to a young lady. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my wife and I were driving to Aspen that same weekend. And between, I want to say Eagle and Aspen, we actually had to put our wiper blades on because the caddis were so thick that summer. It was nuts. Because Kobe Bryant was all up on your windshield. (laughs) <laughs> absolutely yeah he did some naughty things that weekend he's got a lot of money uh, so it's okay yeah he got out of it he lost his Nutella agreement um, <laughs> yeah. but otherwise and he bought his wife like an 8 carat diamond yeah I remember I remember I was right about that time I was I was taking a lot of bug photos and I found this case caddis larva at a little, little bits of stone that it made its made its case out of. But one of the stones was this huge piece of quartz. So you had all these little tiny bits of gravel and sand, but right at the very top is this, it was the oddest looking case caddis I'd ever seen. I remember taking a photo of it and, and posting it online and saying, "Well, this is what if, if Kobe Bryant Bryant's wife was a caddis fly, this is what she'd look like right now. <laughs> it looked like a big diamond, you know." It's fine. <laughs> All right, so that kind of ends my you know, list of questions. I'm going to have to say this is part one of the interview because we finally make the move out there or next vacation, I'm going to have to buy you some, some pints or some goblets of wine and well, let's go out. further discuss fly fishing let's and go fish. Out and explore some of the kind of local areas the kind of between you and I when you, when you get up to Fort Collins, and there's tons of them. We'll have you, guys, have you guys out to the cabin and have a drink and do some fishing. God, I miss Odell's. <laughs> yeah. Man, oh my gosh. Yeah. I've been drinking now since, I mean, not that they're checking IDs, but since I was a junior in high school, I've been drinking Odell's for a long time. Yeah. That is that is my nectar. Um, oh, uh, what, what would you want to just give uh, the listeners who are, are hopefully buying your book and novices or experienced? I mean, you know, honestly, I've got listeners all over the country, all over the world. What just, you know, final things would you want to, well, I, Tell them I'll to seal a, the deal and buy the book. I'll make a pitch for, for the book. Uh, it's small. It's a quick read, uh, obvious. I mean, you had it brought home to you from the library and read it in a day. Anybody, whether you are thinking about fly fishing or have gotten into it a couple years ago or have been doing it for, for 25 years, doesn't matter. There's something in there for you. And I'm not going to say you're going to learn something if you've been doing it for 25, 30 years, but you probably will. But you're going to have a laugh and you're going to say, you know what? This is a good book, and I'm going to recommend it to – and it's going to save you a lot of time when you've got that friend or that, that cousin that, that, that wants to get into it and wants you to take them fishing. It's, it's going to be a book that you will recommend that they get, or you're going to give it to them for the birthday. Or you're going to buy it for somebody who has just started working in a fly shop. Who you know, He's young, he's ambitious, he's 19 years old, and – and he wants to be a fly fishing guide, and he's a young gun. He's really good at what he does, and this is going to be a primer for that guy. And it's going to be direction for him to to be able to feel these questions that he's going to get and get himself in the right frame of mind to answer the question that he's inevitably going to get when he's on the water or his first day in the shop. If I ran a, a, a guide operation again or, or if I owned a fly shop, I would make any new employee read this book just to kind of get himself in the right frame of mind get himself in the right sense of humor to, to deal with it and, and kind of enjoy his job as well as someone who's just getting into fishing to actually lighten up a little bit, laugh at themselves and have fun with it. 
Uh, because, I mean, fly fishing is frustrating to learn, but we want to get into it because it is fun to do. That, that fine balance of finding the humor and failure, but ultimately succeeding in something. Absolutely. All right. Well, I appreciate you uh, taking this Thursday evening out to talk with me and learning how to do Skype. And um, I look <laughs> forward to challenge on my, my end for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I look forward to buying you a gallon of vino when I get to Colorado this that'll, winter. That'll, that'll be a good start, Rob. Again, where can we find you online? Where well, can we uh, uh, buy the book? Yeah, you, you can get the book at Amazon or, or, or give a call to, to Charlie's Fly Box in, in Arvada or, or check out the blog that well, I used to be pretty active on until I got tied up in this late, latest book project. But uh, it's coloradoflyfishingreports.blogspot.com. Now, if you're in Colorado or thinking about coming to Colorado, anybody out there is, is hearing this, yeah, look up uh, Charlie's Fly Box for me and the blog. Pretty soon Rob is going to be out here too. So take woo woo. <laughs> hey, All right. Hey, Rob. Absolutely. Thank you so much, and we'll have this on iTunes in a couple of days. Uh, you bet, brother. All right. Cheers. Thanks so much. Hey, you too, man. All right. Take care. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. Media at freestone-media.com.